It is Friday the 26th of July 2019. This is your host, Matt Joss, and welcome to episode 50 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. First, a quick reminder that nothing I say today should be considered financial advice. And if you're looking for financial advice, I recommend that you speak to an authorized financial advisor. There was plenty of news in the markets this week, but it will have to wait. Because today, the Stock Market Movers podcast brings up its half century, its 50th episode. Because it's episode 50, I, Matt Joss, the host, am going to bring you a very special guest. It's a guest that you're already very familiar with. You'll have to forgive him because he's a little nervous and quite excited as it's the first ever time that he has been interviewed. So without further ado, please welcome your regular host of the Stock Market Movers podcast, Jeremy Medlin. Okay, Jeremy, keen to get started. Uh, so maybe to kick things off, I'd be keen to hear a little around your background in investing, um, how you got started as an investor. Fantastic. Well, I guess since I was a kid, and I actually go through this in episode one of the podcast, so it hasn't really changed too much since then, as yeah. you can imagine. But um, since I was a kid, I always had an interest in the stock market. I'm not mm-hmm. sure where I got that interest from. I guess my earliest memories of it was growing up in the 90s, my grandmother bought me, I think, what was the hot stock in New Zealand at the time, which was Briley's. Okay, um, yeah. Run, yeah. Run by Ron Briley. And I, I don't remember anything about it, except I used to get sent an annual report once a year by the company and a thing called a dividend arrived in the post. Nice. Um, and I didn't know much about much, but it was quite exciting getting a $20 dividend every now and then as a little kid. What were you doing with those dividends? Was it reinvestment at that age, or was it more buying some uh, buying some candy? I think I gave it to, it was a check, of course, so I think I gave it to my dad at the time, who <laughs> yeah. probably spent it, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was good to, you could you could see the rewards early. That's, uh, that's cool. Yeah, okay, so it, take me from, it definitely yeah. got my attention. Yeah, nice. So take me from there. So you're getting the dividends that age. What kind of what kind of happens next? Where's, where's well, the, where's the I guess the, the next memory was um, if you remember Teletext back uh-huh. in the day, um, yeah. you used to be able to log the, on and check stock prices. The and, TV version of the internet. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I, I still have no idea how it worked, but it was yeah. great at the time. Um, yeah. And one of the sections on Teletext was a stock market, and I was always clicking on that. And mm-hmm. again, we're, we're talking the 90s, so another hot stock at the time was the warehouse. And nice, yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah, I guess at the that was the first time it had any sort of connection for me because, you know, Briley shares didn't really mean a thing because they were a company that essentially corporate raiders that went out and bought other companies and tidied them up and sold them on or, or whatever it might have been or stripped the assets out. So it's hard to sort of relate that to your day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. But a warehouse had just opened in Dunedin at the time. So seeing the warehouse shares on the TV and seeing the warehouse just on the other side of town, it sort of provided a bit more context of things. And I remember same thing, telling my parents that they should buy the shares in the warehouse only because every day I I seemed to log on to Teletext and they were worth a bit more, you know what I mean? So that was always getting my attention as well. Um, Yeah, cool. I think Warehouse uh, caught my attention back in the day as well. Um, I mean, maybe it was around the Australian expansion, but um, yeah, I remember reading. Yeah, this would have even been before then, you know. Yeah, nice. Very cool. Um, Yeah, so then, so okay, so you've you've got that um, moving on. What? Yeah, how's it? How's it kind of go? Where do you get into your stuff? I sort of always had 
an eye on the stock market without really knowing anything about anything. I I had that sort of early interest from when I was a kid, and yeah. it didn't really start to get serious until I was at university, mm-hmm. um, or maybe maybe before university. I, I remember my mother she bought me a book for Christmas. I can't remember what it was called or who the author was, but I think it was a New Zealand-based author. So someone yeah. might be able to figure out what that was. Um, and I read that book, and the basic premise of the book was it's by by companies that keep on increasing their profits every year. Yeah. And yeah. so I went out to Google and typed in on Google. This would have been like, I guess, 2004 or five, I suppose. Uh-huh. I typed yeah. into Google stocks that New Zealand companies that increase their profits every year. Mm-hmm. And somewhere on the list of, of companies was Ryman Healthcare. Yeah, nice. Um, and Ryman Healthcare at that, that time was a, a sleepy retirement operator. You know, there wasn't, mm-hmm. it was sort of the opportune time retrospectively and by pure luck to be looking at Ryman Healthcare. Yeah. Um, because it, it wasn't like the, the darling stock that it's, I guess, since become. Mm-hmm. Um, and what got my attention about Roman healthcare is I was, I was studying geography at university, so the, the, the human geography, which is the demographics and the populations and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and the basically the investment premise for Roman healthcare was that New Zealand population was aging. And yeah. without really knowing much about much, all, all I knew was that that, that was true. Mm-hmm. And that they were increasing their profits every year. And that was no. basically my whole research process. And, you know, I went ahead and basically put every dollar I had into Roman healthcare at the time, um, which initially turned out to be a, a good decision. I think the stock, I would have bought it around like a dollar forty a share or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it went up to like a dollar ninety three or, or something like that a share. And yeah. that turned a bit turned it was, it was don't don't quote me on that numbers, but that turned out to be the high. Yeah, um, nice. and then the stock subsequently lost I think fifty percent or forty percent of its value in the financial crisis. Right. Um, okay. And I was sort of left I I think even then I understood intuitively that it it, it wasn't a reason to panic. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so there's a difference the, between the share price and the business. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think what what gave me comfort was that there was clearly a lot of panic going on elsewhere. Like that, the market was on the news every day. Companies are going out of business, so it sort of it sort of felt like everything was falling. So it didn't feel so bad. I think if I bought Roman Healthcare and the rest of the market had doubled, and my Roman Healthcare investment had lost forty percent, it probably would have freaked me out. I'm with you. Um, but that was my basic, my, my first stock, and I held through that. And then I think I can't remember where I eventually sold, but it was significantly higher than than that in the end. And I guess when your first investment goes up four or five times in in value, and you know I, I don't claim any sorcery to to do that. It was just yeah. the way it it, it it turned out. It sort of gets your attention, you know. Absolutely. So at this stage, have you kind of discovered? Warren Buffett and the kind of value investing style, or was that after, later? Yeah, I mean, I I started to, um, I, I started reading a, a, around this time, um, and I, I was sort of reading just basically anything that I could get my hands on. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the big influence on me at the time would have been Peter Lynch's books. 
no, um, the, the one up on one up on Wall Street and beating the street. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And those, I guess it was because they're, and I'd, I'd recommend anyone read them, by the way. They're awesome books, and I've probably read them three or four times since then. Um, the, the the good thing about them is that they're written in a way that I think anyone can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and he makes, makes he's quite, I guess, gung-ho and, and American about the way he goes about things because it's all sort of confidence and, and blue sky thinking and everything like that, mm-hmm. even though I think when you actually strip back what he was doing, he was probably actually quite risk-adverse and, and dived into things and into a lot of detail on the actual day, his day-to-day operation. Um, but his his books were very confidence-inspiring. And yeah. I think it, and I think once you're sort of in, into the, the book reading thing, I mean, you'll know what it's like. You sort of go from one book to another, and before yeah. you know it, you've read sort of, 10 or 12 books and, and that's what I'd recommend to anyone is, is reading all the great investment books yeah excellent so how would you kind of sum up um, kind of Peter Lynch's approach or what you got from him um, in terms of his kind of style and strategy and whatever else um, I guess the the, the, the Lynch approach you, you know he, he's, he's quite similar to Warren Buffett and what he does and he, he's, he says a few times in those books that what him and Warren Buffett do is exactly the same, except Warren Buffett buys the whole company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess that is, is true. So Lynch is, is, you don't see Lynch, well, you, you, I'm not sure if he's still doing it now, but you, you didn't see him run off and buy companies that he had no understanding of. Yeah. Um, so he, he would always, he would stick with, you know, the, the examples he always, was always using with companies like Dunkin' Donuts and, you know, there was a hair salon company and, all those sorts of companies that it's easy for everyday people to intuitively wrap their head around. Mm-hmm. Um, and believe it or not, he, he actually quite liked retail stocks as well. Mm. Um, and he likes that. He, he liked to catch stocks that were quite small and expanding, preferably. And he would he would really sort of nail look for the ones where there would be that sort of multi-bag opportunity and he does list a whole bunch of different situations he likes to buy as well but yeah. i guess he's famous for coining the the, the term the 10 bagger the 10 bagger so yeah when you buy a, a company for a dollar and it ends up being worth ten dollars for example yeah that's a pretty good outcome um nice <laughs> so and i, I guess uh, uh peter lynch as you say is all about um individual or independent kind of research and, and finding what you know so taking a a different view from the market based on your own kind of experience. Yeah, and he was quite, he, was, he didn't mind doing quite deep and on the ground research as well. So, yeah, you know, he, he uses examples of taking his daughters to shopping malls, for example, and watching what they buy, watching what they're into. And, and he liked he liked to pick up things he would see in, in real life early before the rest of the stock market did. And that that's always sort of, stuck with me as well is that you can I believe that you can find opportunities in, in day-to-day life that you can't pick up before the rest of the market does I mean yeah think of the I don't know the the, the farmer that has figured out the a2 milk thing before the rest of the market for example um, you know you, you, yeah. you could have yeah you could have seen it yeah shop maybe a better example you could have seen these things happening if you were close enough to it you know yeah, excellent. And I guess for anyone listening, um, of course, Peter Lynch did something like 30% a year for 10 years, so he's not just a good author. He's um, also got some pretty great returns out of it. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, it was with a it was a significant amount of money as well. As well, it wasn't yeah. like a a small sum. He was able to compound with large amounts of money. Yeah, excellent. So, how, how would you kind of describe your approach today? So, your style and process. Obviously, you've had some influences: Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch. What what kind of investment style and process do you like to do today? I hate this question because I don't really think that I have a set style or approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the, you know, I'm not like focusing on small caps or big companies or growing companies or not or companies that aren't growing or value companies or you know, I, I'm not doing anything in particular. Um, I guess the approach that I'm that I'm taking is that it, I'm, I'm always viewing as if I was buying the whole company and buying all the shares outstanding. Of course, I'm never doing that. I'm always buying sort of a, a, a very tiny portion of the company relative to its market cap. But I'm always thinking as if I'm buying the whole company. And yeah. because I, I I I take that approach, different things make different sense at different at different times. So, for example, where there, there could be a growth company that you'd consider to be undervalued, and there could be a, a company that was declining revenues that could be undervalued. That company could could be bigger, could be small, but I'm always having that approach that I'm buying the whole company, um, and I, I try not to, to sway too far from that. And then I guess, you know, there's always the ideal situation that you're looking for, you know, like the, the company with a product that you intuitively understand, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's some. When I, when I mean intuitively understand, it's it's the situation where you don't need it to be explained to you. Yeah. You know, like say for the, not an obvious example, just because it's right in front of me right now, is is Netflix. You know, I'm, I'm not a, a stockholder of Netflix, I never have been, but you could say that as a as a company that anyone can explain to you how they make money after ten seconds of interaction with them. You know. Yeah. They, so a they, lot of investors are probably drawn to quite complex companies and and think kind of you know whether it's biotech or some new emerging technology or even even mining what why do you think it is important to be able to understand what you're buying um it goes back to what i said before about um buying the whole company um when you when you understand intuitively what you're doing i mean a a, it saves a lot of time you don't need to be doing deep research trying to figure out what a company does but i think it's important because when stuff happens you're able to react you're able to. You've got a better chance of figuring out what's happening, and you're able to react to it. So, and just keep with this Netflix example. You may have seen yesterday that Netflix missed their subscriber numbers by two million or something like that. Um, and yeah, fell in the US, I think, for the first time for a very long time. Yeah, and, and the stock and the stock was down. Um, mm-hmm. And oh, maybe this is a bad example, but you, if if you understood what that meant or, or what the company was doing and everything like that, you may or may not feel comfortable with it, and you can figure out what's happening, whereas if you're buying some complicated oil sands company in, in Canada that is very obscure, for example, or yeah. a, a medicinal marijuana company operating out of you know, some part of the world that you've, you've never been to and, and something happens with that company, it's, it's very difficult to assess when you don't fully understand the product. Yes, I'm with you. So being able to respond to news rather than just kind of reacting, going along with the herd, not too easy to do unless you understand what the business does. Yeah, and always try to take it back to, to real life as well. I mean, would you, would if, if you were buying a small business, would you buy a, a small business that you literally didn't understand? And it always sort of, 
it's always seems a bit crazy to me in in the markets when you when you see people buying you know they they spend, they take all this time to save the money to invest in the stock market and then they go funnel in into something they literally have no no comprehension of. It doesn't yeah, really right. make, doesn't really make any sense, you know. Meanwhile, they'll spend you know two months researching which car they're going to buy. Or which yeah, exactly. Or arguing over who's getting the next round of the pub or something like that. You know, it, <laughs> it doesn't really make much sense. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. So with that um, kind of approach of of picking up on things around you, is there any kind of memorable examples of a particular company? Um, over the past few years, that's kind of been a, yeah, a good example of that in practice. Yeah, because when I um when I left New Zealand, I went over to the UK for a, a few years, and that's when I really because that, that's when I sort of got my first proper job and everything like that. So suddenly, I had a a bit more disposable income, and that's when I really sort of ramped up my interest in the stock market. And mm-hmm. I, I was reading. It's funny when you read certain books, you suddenly start implementing what you what you read which is why yeah. it's really important to make sure you're reading stuff that's telling you the right things because one of the things about the stock markets is there's so much bad information out there that's written in a convincing way that if you start reading it suddenly you're taking in the wrong information but mm-hmm. i read um the famous always getting confused is it um the common stocks and uncommon profits author. What's his name again? The Fisher guy Fisher. Yeah, Fisher. Phil, yeah. Phil Fisher. Yeah. I read Fisher, the book yeah. Common Stocks Uncommon Profits, which mm-hmm. he sort of, which Warren Buffett has said is a has been a massive influence on him as well, um, and it's quite similar to the Peter Lynch books. But in in those books, he talks about his this term he calls scuttlebutt, um, where basically you're trying to learn as much about an industry or a, a product through talking to people and, and, and really understanding sort of the nitty-gritty on the ground. Mm. And a memorable, to get back to your question, a memorable example of this would be, for me, EasyJet in the UK. EasyJet, um, okay. So this yeah. is a discount, a budget airline in the UK? That's right, like a short-haul discount air carrier yeah. and, and that flies out of the, I think, the, the headquarters in Luton, but they fly all, all over Europe, essentially. Um, it would be a lo- kind of like a Jetstar or something, I guess. So, very similar to a Jetstar, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they're they're a good company, and you know, and it, as everyone knows, the airline industry is difficult, and it goes yeah. through periods of um, cycles, you know, of, of, um, yeah, over investment and, and crash, you know, and yeah. There's all sorts of things that can impact the airline industry, um, and at the time, but the, the good thing about the airline industry is I think it is relatively easy to understand as well. Right, and you've got a yeah, plane, you've got to fill it with as many people as you can and fly it as often as you can and everything else. Yeah, so I think there's money to be made in the airline industry if you were to specialise in that. You know, you can figure out when to buy, when to sell and all that because if you're specialising in it, you've got an edge over everyone else. But anyway, at the time, it was one of those times when the airline stocks were getting absolutely smashed. Um, and at the time, it was I think it was, would have been 2014, I suppose. Um and what happened was there was a massive Ebola outbreak in North Africa, mm-hmm. um, and there was real fears. And I think there'd been a case breakout in Spain or something like that as well. There were real fears surrounding the, the, a wider outbreak in Europe. Right. And of course, all the airline stocks were getting sold off because there was all, all these dramatic headlines about how they'd have to close down flights and be a lock, and, like lockdown to stop yeah, the yeah of a and disease obviously 
mm-hmm. you don't get anything worse for an airline than a lockdown. <laughs> mm. um, so that that's what was happening, and there was there was other things going on as well, but it was a predominant thing. And we I went on a holiday with a, a couple of mates to Malta, mm-hmm. um, which is an island sort of lodged pretty much squarely between Europe and Africa. And the plane on both directions was absolutely full. Um, and we were sitting on the, and I was already looking at EasyJet at the time, you know, and at the time as well, we were in an environment where oil prices were dropping. It was actually quite a good environment for airline stocks, for yeah. airline companies. And we're sitting on the tarmac in Malta and the plane was delayed. Uh-huh. And it was delayed for, it was a reasonable delay. And they come over on the speakers and they say, does anyone want to go speak to the pilot? And I'm thinking, jackpot, I'm looking at EasyJet already. This is an opportunity yeah. to go speak to the pilot. So I I, I think it was me and a bunch of kids put up that. Went to speak to the pilot. Um, yeah. And I got, I got checked into the pilot. I was asking him about, about a bowler and everything like this. And he goes, look, mate, this plane's full. Uh-huh. All our planes are full. We've done some research within the company that, and and we we don't think it's a a, a material risk at all. Yeah, nice. Um, and that you know you might think you're sort of receiving some sort of information that mm. is sort of inside information or exclusive information or something you couldn't have got elsewhere. But really, if you if you put your thinking cap on or maybe dug beneath the surface of the headlines, you would have come to the same conclusion that the chance of a material outbreak of Ebola in Europe was was quite slim. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes to me, and this is never a reason to buy a stock, by the way, but he goes, I'm buying shares. Yeah, right. And that that was just enough for me to, to run out and <laughs> when I got back by EasyJet shares. And, okay, nice. And then the stock, you know, I think it went up 50, 40 or 50% from there. Um, I don't yeah, think it's right. done much since, mind you, but at the time yeah. it was a good investment. No. So I guess what you're kind of describing is coupling that with research. So you've already, you're already researching the EasyJet company, you're kind of running the numbers on it, and then kind of adding on a layer where you're, you're kind of getting the scuttlebutt or talking to customer suppliers and, and staff members and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and and you know, I already knew what his profit margins were and what the mm. dividend was, and what you know, I already knew, I already felt comfortable with the company anyway. Um, yeah. I like it helped that I liked the service it offered. I always was always flying EasyJet. You know, it was, there's a few things that added up there, but I guess the the point is, it was is it goes back to what I was saying before about being a company that I intuitively understood, mm-hmm. and I, I understood that. The, and this this gives you, this sort of answers your question from earlier was that if if I um, didn't feel and didn't intuitively understand EasyJet, I might have been selling like everyone else. Yeah. And that because was you might the, have been panicked because you wouldn't have any kind of any any rock to stand on. You could say. Yeah, no exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you you don't need to understand. You know, I'm just repeating Warren Buffett now, but you don't need to understand every single company in the world. Yeah. Um, it, it, you just need to un- understand a few or a few different industries, and, and you can do quite well. Hundred percent. So, talk me through your process a little. How do you decide which companies you're going to buy? Is it is it dr- driven by curiosity? Are you do you do some kind of quantitative screening? Is it reading the paper, seeing what things kind of jump out at you, and then digging in? How do you how do you kind of find new ideas? Look, I I, I don't really have a process. Um, mm-hmm. I I deliberately leave it that way. Um, mm-hmm. 
and I guess it probably suits my my personality as well. Like I I'm not I'm not someone that will do hours of of preparation before I start the week or anything like that. I sort of just normally go with the flow. Okay. But yeah, yeah. I, I guess you could say I sort of keep my my ear to the to the ground and and just when I when I see something that I'm interested in, I'll I'll, I'll go do the research on it. I don't pay any attention to forums or Twitter or <laughs> what's happening yeah. on Facebook or or, or or anything like that. I I or what's even happening in the media. I, I, I ignore all that. I, I make most of my decisions based off what I already know about a company and its service or its product. What I already know or understand about the industry and then from there from the company materials mm-hmm. um, I don't like company presentations too much although I, I do read them basically a lot of the information I'm, I'm getting is coming from the annual reports right so you're going to the primary source you don't want to be too colored by management always always saying something good and putting a good spin you try and get into the primary yeah I, I, I pay attention to what manage you can't always get a read on what management's like right i mean and you'll yeah. know um but I, I do try to sort of pick up on on things that management do and, and whether that is what i consider to be shareholder friendly or not yeah um and if i consider it to be shareholder friendly obviously that's a not that there's a column but it's a it's a tick in the good column you know that's a great point and i guess now um with the podcast you've you've interviewed a few ceos um on the podcast I'd be interested to get kind of your thoughts. How do you think about management? What is a good manager? And yeah, how can you kind of how can you identify that as a shareholder? Is it possible for an outside shareholder to identify that in your view? And how do you go about it's, it? It's not always possible, mm-hmm. um, but I'd say it's it, it's not always possible for anyone either. Like if you're a new investor, or because you know. When you're a new investor, you're, you're told by people, you're told by people, oh, you should know if management's good or stuff like that. And and then it's all, how do I find out if management's good? And people give you these reasons, and it sounds really easy, but it's not. Even if yeah. you're a really experienced investor, figuring out if management's good or, or or not is a really difficult thing. And it's specifically related to the podcast. Yeah, I have spoken to a few CEOs on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, what do I take away from that? You know. I guess all I can say is that all, all CEOs come across really well. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of um, I remember talking to another investor when we're we're going. We I do a lot of CEO meetings as well, and kind of coming out of one quite positive and just kind of looking at each other and thinking, I don't think there's ever, ever almost been a CEO meeting where you don't feel more positive about the company after you've just talked to the CEO. Um, yeah. I guess it's kind of their job, right? They're the the leaders. They they're putting forward a big vision, um, and you probably just need to take some take a moment. Let it sink in. Maybe wait till the next day, often before you make a decision, because um, it tends to be a halo effect around CEOs. Yeah, ex- exactly. I, I 100% agree with that. It's it's quite hard to assess what's, you know, and, and I'm sure when you listen to the podcast as well, I'm sure they come across all come across as is really fantastic. So it's difficult to take too much away from that. But I think really you're looking to see what they do with the. With with the capital that the company has, mm-hmm. um, so, so capital allocation. Yeah, exactly. So, for example, if you if you see them one year making a capital raise, taking yeah. more money from from investors, then it's sort of like figuring out in the subsequent time what have they done with that money, 
You know, mm-hmm. Has that generated more profits? Has that generated more dividends? And if, if the answer is no, then you, you've almost got to question the ability of management. Yeah. How much um, how much time do you give management? How do you think about, um, yeah, I guess, how much leeway for, for something like profit, for example? You've got some now very um, aggressively growing companies that um, that talk a lot more about revenue growth than profit. What's your what's your take on that kind of thing? Um, in, in terms of management, I think it's difficult to assess all the time. Um, and look, if, if you're sort of excluding companies because you you can't get a read on the management, a, a lot of times you're not going to be left with too many companies to invest in. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, sometimes I just can't figure it out and then I'm just basing the decision based off other things. But I guess if you... you you're you're looking for red flags a lot of the time, or on the opposite side of things, you're looking to see really good things that you like. Um, I like I, I like small things like I've I've like when I interviewed John Follett, for example, um, from Sky TV, and he was telling me that you know he would take he would take a week or so to write his annual report. And yeah, that stuck out. I listened to that podcast. That yeah, stuck out for me as well. And that, that stands out in a world when you know that when most annual reports are written by consultants. Yeah. So, you know, seeing someone that actually takes his time to address shareholders is, mm. uh, I, I think, a good thing. Um, but and probably a yeah. signal, I guess, that they, um, to your point, uh, put shareholders first and are thinking about shareholder value, not just about their own kind of paycheck. Yeah, exactly. But a, a, a management is a, is a difficult one to assess. Um, and I have sympathy for people that say that because I'm in the same boat. Yeah, no. So something you mentioned a few times um, is value. So you're thinking, you're talking about all this stuff, but you're still doing some analysis to see if you think it's it's cheap or not. I'd be curious to hear this. Um, don't have to give away all your secrets, but a little of your kind of philosophy, how you think about whether something is good value Overvalued or, or undervalued. Or overvalued, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I'd, I'd start by saying that I think in, in the current market, there's the... Uh, assumption that people will pay anything for growth mm-hmm. um, or there's the difference people refer to like the difference between growth and value investments and yeah. I think it's it, and I'm sure you agree that it, it is a silly distinction because yeah. you can have a you can have a growth company that's overvalued and you can also have a growth company that's undervalued mm-hmm. and you can have one that would be considered a traditional value investment being the same it could be either overvalued or undervalued so it it's sort of like a I would consider like just a growth, a component of value. Um, and I guess ideally, um, if you think about it from a, and I always like to think about things from a small business perspective, mm. in, in general, you prefer to see some growth. Yeah. Um, whether that's high growth or, or, or low growth, you, it, it does become easier when you have a company that's growing. Yeah. It's um, a qualitatively different type of business, I guess, if you're, Trying to manage, trying to figure out what the good value is for something that's declining, it perhaps can be quite hard, um, or at least it's quite a different, yeah, maybe a qualitatively different thing to something that is growing. Yeah, and I guess um, when when something's growing, a lot of the times it's about what's sort of going in, and when something's decreasing, it's all about taking money out, if that makes sense, and and achieving re- re- value that way. But I guess the the trouble with a lot of stocks that I see in the market now, I, I would consider them, and it seems to be that a lot of people are prepared to pay anything for growth. 
Mm-hmm. And a lot, a lot of the prices paid seem to be irrational to me. So what I typically yeah. try to do is if I've got a company um, that I understand the product intuitively and I, I like everything about it and everything like that, what I try to do is I try to figure out the per share value of what I think it's worth. Excellent, yeah. Um, and that that company could be growing, it could be a small company, it could be a large company, it might not be growing, it, it could be decreasing, it could have quite grim prospects. Yeah. But I'm trying to figure out the per share value of what I think it's worth. Yeah. Um, and then if the if that per share value is higher than the current market, yeah. then it would be insane to buy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and if that per share value is... Is, is lower. Um, that, that's when you sort of, or oh, sorry, other way around, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. So you're, you're valuing the whole business, figuring out yeah. what it is worth on a per share basis, and then trying to buy at a discount for that. Exactly. Valuing. So if I figure out if a stock's, if I figure out a stock's worth a dollar, mm-hmm. um, and I can buy it for fifty cents in the market, that's the old traditional example. Then I'd, I'd consider buying it. But if I think the stock's worth a dollar. Yeah. And you can only buy it for two dollars in the market, then it, it's irrational to buy it. We've talked, um, we talk a, a fair bit uh, about investing. I haven't actually asked you this one recently, so I'm putting you on the spot a little. But I'm curious to hear: uh, Do you think there's some areas that are uh, generally more favourable at the moment? So you mentioned that there's a lot of growth companies that are quite overvalued, and I'd, I'd probably agree there's, there's definitely a lot, some hype. I was just curious: Are there any kind of broad areas where you think investors? Are kind of missing the boat, or do you think it's more specific Um it's, it's a hard one. Do you mean like specific sectors and things like that? Yeah, sectors or um, styles, or there's some kind of talk of you know maybe value to traditional value companies are out of favour, so kind of slower growing companies. Um, yeah, just curious if there's anything that jumps out at you as a whole kind of segment or industry or whatever else, or is it is it more case by case basis? Um, it's it's very it's very case by case basis because um, mm-hmm. even like traditional, like maybe some slower growing industries or no growth industries, if you look at where their valuations are, they still seem relatively rich to me. So you think yeah. about companies like Coca Cola, for example, or if that's 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 not a good example, name your example, or Procter and Gamble. Yeah. You know, traditional yeah. big slow moving value. You know what people would consider value investments. They still seem relatively richly priced to me. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think um, a lot of these are potentially being disrupted. And so, uh, you know, to the to the Peter Lynch point of paying attention to what's happening around you, if you see a lot of these startup brands can now go kind of go viral on Instagram and create a lot of brand, whereas previously that cost billions of dollars of, of marketing. So, yeah, I think I think you're probably onto something there that a yeah, lot of the traditional I'm... safe stuff isn't as safe anymore. It's it, it it's a tough one to be buying something for thirty times earnings and hoping that someone will buy it off you for thirty five times earnings. It, yeah, it's you know it, it, it's a greater fool theory. I think it's yeah, it, <laughs> and and a lot of the market seems like that to me at the moment. Mm-hmm. In terms of like areas that might be widely undervalued, I think, and we don't see much of it here. And I suppose you do, but. I think if, if you sniffed around hard enough in some of the more capital-intensive businesses in the United States, you would yeah. find companies that are undervalued. Yeah, because out of favour. Because it's so unloved. Yeah, everyone's moving, yeah. and you know, capital-like businesses are far better businesses, and that's why. But yeah. I don't think you so have to dig too hard. Yeah. And 
The same thing in the retail sector, and, and that applies to New Zealand as well. There seems to be a lot of retail stocks that are trading on very cheap valuations because people are factoring in, in a not-too-pleasant future for mm. the retail industry. And I think yeah. to, a, to a large degree that's true, but I think a lot of the, I guess, consolidation in the retail sector, and I don't mean consolidation as in takeovers, I mean companies going out of business, has happened. And a lot of the survivors, not all of them, but a lot of them actually have have come through with quite clean balance sheets now. Yeah. Um, and I think if you sniffed around in the retail sector, you'd probably find some companies that provided satisfactory returns. Now, I say satisfactory because they'll only be satisfactory. Yeah. It's not going to be, you're not going to shoot the lights out by buying. Yeah, and I think stocks, that's an but, important distinction as well. You mentioned... Um, selling EasyJet when it was up 40% or something. I think that's something you have to keep in mind is the type of business you're buying. If you're buying a type of business that can be a 10-bagger, it can increase, you know, a 1,000% in value, or if it's one that is, you know, only reasonable to increase 40 or 50%, then you probably want to sell and move on and find another one. So, and yeah. it's, a good, it's a good question to ask yourself as well, is what does a company do to have to justify a higher valuation? Yeah. And in a lot of cases, it's, it's it's quite a lot, um, and and you know that, that, and if if it comes back to the, the maybe they don't justify the current valuation, and and maybe it will be quite difficult for them to achieve good returns going forward. That's when you have got to think about it, you know. Yeah, hundred percent. So Jeremy, we've touched on a bit of your style and process, um, and and some some examples where it's gone well. I, I always liked also to dig into where things don't quite work out and, and what we can like learn from it. So I'd be curious to hear a little, maybe a particular mistake that you'd made or like a, a lesson that you'd learnt along the way, something that um, maybe you got wrong or um, that didn't work out as you expected and kind of what you learned from it. Oh, because I've certainly made plenty of mistakes. Um, <laughs> yeah, haven't we all? Maybe rather than like an individual mistake, I think mm-hmm. I did get miss... I went off the rails for a while on investing strategy. Okay. Um, like completely off the rails. Uh-huh. Um, and it goes back <laughs> to what I said before about what you're reading and what's influencing you. Yeah. Um, so I got involved in a in a crowd. You, you, that was, <laughs> you hooked up with a bad crowd. Like yeah, I got, going off the rails and yeah, I got like on the wrong yeah. side of the tracks for a while. Yeah. So I got yeah. involved. I was working at a company and there was people there that were quite heavily involved in technical analysis. Okay. And, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. That that's all yeah. good. You know, you can I don't I don't really care how other people invest. Um yeah. and I got heavily influenced by that. And mm-hmm. so what I did was I subsequently went out and read all the material on that, you know, all the and there's some yeah. good stuff out there. It's, it's worth it's worth reading, you know, the Mark Minivini books and mm-hmm. you know, the William O'Neill and the Market Wizards yeah. and all that. And and they're good books, it's worth a read. If nothing else yeah. to understand what's happening in the market. And you might find that it really clicks with you as well. Um, and I guess the I did make money from that at first as well. Yeah, well, um, I'm not sure. Can be the worst thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was probably more what the market was doing at the time and everything like that more than anything else, you know. Um, so we're in a, an environment when interest rates are decreasing, and then suddenly, you know, what what I was doing was working really well. Um, and that's not a not to say that that sort of investing can't work, but it didn't really mesh with my personality. And when things did yeah. start going wrong, I had no basis to hold the shares. Yeah, I think that's a really and important I, and point. And I was just selling. Yeah. 
So I, I, yeah, I think Sorry. the I think I think something I always tell people as well is finding the style and strategy that suits your personality and temperament and interest is probably the mm. most important thing. Um, there's a lot of kind of religious battles in investing of which style is best and you know whether it's deep value investing or classic value or growth investing or whatever else. But as you said, it's kind of nonsense. Like what matters is um, finding something that works. For you, and that has you can have like a, a kind of a rational foundation to build your thinking around. Um, and for you know, for your, your, both you and me, I think a lot of that is influenced by like Buffett and, and Peter Lynch. But the main thing I think is finding something that suits your style and temperament, because you're not if not, you're not going to stick with it during the, the bad times as well. Yeah, I mean, what I was doing then was speculating, right? So I mm-hmm. was I was basically buying it for technical reasons and hoping that I could. That some buying it because thinking that someone else is going to come along and pay more for it from me essentially. Yeah. Whereas what I'm doing now and what I was doing when I started out was buying a, a business based on the asset and what it's going to produce. Yeah. Um, and trying to buy it for less than what it's going to produce, and that that's what it comes down to is laying out money now with the hope of getting more money back in the future. And Trust me, I still get a lot of stuff wrong, and <laughs> in, in this in this way as well. But at least I know what's gone wrong when it, when that happens. And most of the yeah. times when it's gone wrong, it's because it's, I've, I've paid too much for it. Yeah, it's not it's not usually because I've assessed the the company wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it's usually because I've paid too much for it. Yeah, so, I'm with you. Yeah. So it's not the company's fundamental performance; it's mostly valuation. So, I would say yeah. so, yeah. And there'll yeah. be examples whether that's not whether it's not the case where I've just completely misread it. Um, yeah. But more often than not, it's because of valuation. I've, I've paid too much for something. Um, yeah. And then if you bought a good company, for example, and you paid too much for it, time normally corrects that, but you, you haven't got a good investment return in the meantime. I think the the key thing and in, in the investing game, and people talk about the long term, but I think the being able to be in for the long term is the not from the investment perspective, but more for the knowledge perspective. So oh, interesting. The, the stuff I learned now, I, I learned you know twelve years ago, whenever it was when I started investing, I still know now. Mm-hmm. It's like this compound interest of yeah, compound knowledge. interest for knowledge. Yeah, nice. exactly. Yeah, and so when you learn about an industry ten years ago. You still know that now, and you can quickly apply it to the situation. And in five years' time, I'll know more than what I know now. And five years after that, I'll I'll know more than what I knew then. So it's you know when you hear about people that say Warren Buffett's over the hill and he doesn't know what he's talking about and everything like that, just uh, it's yeah, just wrong, <laughs> pretty yeah. much. You know, because I think if if you stick at investing, you, it's the cumulative knowledge that really helps you over the long term. Yeah, 100%. And then something that you didn't even think was important 10 years ago, maybe it comes into play now and can help you find a bargain or something exactly. like that. Exactly. And I'll, I'll give you an example, right? There's um, the, I think it's a Lawrence Cunningham, the letters to share, the, the Berkshire Hathaway letters to shareholders. Yeah. I think I read that when I first started investing yeah. and I took some stuff away from it but didn't understand a lot. Yeah. And then I read it a few years after that, I understood a lot more and you, you get that cumulative knowledge as you go on, and I think it's really important. Excellent. Speaking of cumulative knowledge, as I understand, you have recently watched every Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting since 1993. Is that correct? 1994, yeah. Um, <laughs> nice. Someone's gone and loaded on the, the Berkshire Hathaway 
annual general meetings since 1994. They're about five hours uh-huh. a piece on YouTube. Honestly, five hours a piece for how many how many years are we talking about there? That's 25 <laughs> years, years, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. Years. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, Excellent. It, it is a marathon. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if people were listening to this on the podcast, they'd be far better off listening to that. Um, yeah. It, it's it's fantastic material. It's like getting a university degree. Yeah, it's, excellent. It's fantastic stuff. I mean, a lot of the stuff they're repeating year after year, but every time you learn something, I can guarantee it. Yeah, excellent. So, yeah, you mentioned that I've I've just started, so I'm, I think I'm in the second year. <laughs> but the old ones, the old ones are better. Yeah, yeah, right. They get into more of the the foundational stuff, huh? Yeah, and I think um, the older ones are just questions from the audience, and Warren and Charlie are a lot younger. They're talking a lot faster, and yeah, yeah. It's, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they're both, they're both pushing on. Maybe Charlie's fallen asleep in some of the more recent meetings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, for a new investor starting out, obviously you've had a bit of experience with this now. What would be your biggest piece of advice for a, a new investor? Um, I think you've you've got to. There's a few things. I think starting small is a big one. Um, you're going to make mistakes when you start out. And, yeah. you know, most people just because of when they're starting in life are going to start small anyway. But small is going to be different for different people. For some yeah. people, $1,000 would be small. For some people, $10,000 would be small. So whatever's small for you, start with that. Um, the reason is that it's, you're going to make a lot of mistakes and it's better to make mistakes with smaller amounts of money for you than larger amounts of money. If you start off with a large amount of money for you and you make a mistake and it's a big one, mm. Then you're mm-hmm. going to go stock investing's not for me, and you're yeah. out. Um, so that that would be the the first okay. thing. Um, I think the second thing, if you're looking to assess businesses, um, I think a basic understanding of accounting is okay. is a, a a really big deal. Um, How would you say that? So you know, accounting can be a tough subject. I, I completely agree. I think it's super valuable. Do you have any? Suggestions how to kind of get started into that if it's not your background. Yeah, and that was it's not my background either. Um, I would say you know understanding. I mean the financial statements of of most companies, depending on the jurisdiction, are going to be relatively you know consistent because they're all on the same principles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess just understanding what each line of the financial statements mean, yeah. and if you understand what they mean, and then you and you look at enough of them, you'll start to figure things out. No. Um, so I think having a, a basic understanding of accounting would really help. Um, and you know, Google's good for that, right? You start at the top and you, what's revenue, type in revenue to Google and you figure it out. Um, yeah, what's gross margin and, and, and you go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say, obviously, you're, you're starting small, but you've got to start in the right place as well. I think you're you're pretty much doomed if you're jumping into the stock market and you're jumping into CFDs that leverage 100 to 1, which is where yeah. like most people start. It's, mm-hmm. it's just a matter of time before you're not a stock investor anymore. You know, yeah. I might have, might have got lucky with my first Roman healthcare investment, but mm. I started in the right place. You know, I was buying a stock in, in my own name. Yeah. Um, and it, it really increases your chances of success. Because like I said, it's about, forget about the, the compound rates. It's about being in the market for a long period of time. Um, yeah. And then I think if you're if you're spending less than what you earn, mm-hmm. and you're slowly growing your portfolio over time, then that that's the way to to go about it. Because before you know it, 
and again, this is very for different different people. But if you're investing in with sound principles and you're adding to it over time, then before you know it, you can have a lot of money for you. Yeah, I um, think that's that, a super that important point. Yeah, it's probably like the hardest thing when you're starting because you know you, you know probably for both of us the first lot of shares you buy might be a thousand dollars, right? And that might be a, a very big number. Um, to you and your standards certainly was to me. I think I was about eighteen and first thousand dollars, and um, yeah. it's very hard to think, you know, um, think long term enough where you're just trying to um, get a, you know, a better, average, better return than the share market is what you're going for. But um, what, even if you're getting, if you, even if you're just buying an ETF fund and just trying to get whatever eight to ten percent, it's really hard to appreciate that when it, when the sums are still small, how much that builds up, and also the knowledge, right? So you're learning a little bit, but you still don't know that much when you're starting, but it's only kind of 5, 10, 20 years down the track where you just see this staggering growth that happens over time from that compounding. Whereas that when you start, though, you, I guess you're always in a hurry, right? Because you see, I've got a 1,000 and I'm trying to get to whatever big number. Um, and so that's how you can very easily get seduced into things like you know, trading very frequently and using a lot of leverage with a you know, crazy derivative instrument like CFDs. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's easy to get led astray. I mean, if you're starting with if you're starting with buying a company in your own name through your own CSN number in New Zealand, or what do you call it in Australia, like an HSN or whatever it's called. Yeah. yeah um, okay. um, so, if you're starting with that and you're buying a company that you understand that you're familiar with, probably familiar with from your day-to-day -day life as well, mm -hmm. that is paying a dividend out of its cash flow, mm -hmm. um, then it's probably quite hard to to go wrong over the long term to get yourself started. Um, whereas if you're jumping straight into a hundred to one leveraged CFD on the yeah. US dollar, New Zealand dollar, then it, you're, you're setting yourself up pretty much. Yeah, setting setting up for. I'd say other other mistakes people make is, and this is a real common one, and it's hard not to get drawn into it, um, is freaking out too much about stuff that doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, it's not just yeah. I mean, the whole financial world is that. If you turn on, um, you know, turn on CNBC or Bloomberg TV or wherever you get your news, I guess um, the whole media is geared up for stuff that doesn't matter, isn't it? And it seems like an obvious retrospective example now, right? But and it's easy to pick this up retrospectively. But you could say that Donald Trump getting elected to the to the president, yeah. being the president of the United States was an example when everyone freaked out unnecessarily in the stock market. You know, mm -hmm. I think if you look through, and, and I'm just paraphrasing what Warren Buffett said in the past, but if you look through the Forbes 100 of the 100 richest people in the world, I don't think there's anyone that's got there from being a macro forecaster. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I, I would I, I would tune out everyone that that is telling you that you shouldn't invest in stocks because the economy is doing this or the Labour government's in power or any of that sort of stuff. It's it's just stuff to be ignored. You've got to focus on what's, what's focus knowable on the, and the controllable. Yeah. As long as you're buying exactly, yeah. doing well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Jeremy, I'm keen to hear a bit about what you're working on now. So, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit. Um, I know you don't talk about this too much, but I'm keen to hear a bit more about it. So, um, DCB, what, what's this about? Yeah, so obviously... Um, my, my day to day job, I work as a business broker, um, mm -hmm. so selling businesses. But I also have a small investment company set up. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, that investment company it's it's set up 
as I'm not sure exactly what the correct legal way of saying it is, but essentially functions the same way a managed fund would fund would, would run. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, people are able to set up an account through a broker, um, mm-hmm. and I have a, a, a master account, and I can place a transaction by shares on on, on their behalf, and it, it just runs essentially the same way as a managed fund would run, um, and I get charged a I, I, they, they get charged a management fee for that if that makes yeah. sense. And so that's um, sophisticated or wholesale, is that the equivalent? Yes, sorry, I should have yeah. said that at the start. Yes, yeah, so um, it, to to be in the funds, you need to be a, a wholesale or an eligible investor in New Zealand, essentially. Gotcha. And what, what's, um, what do you think is uh, kind of what sets that fund apart? So you talked a bit about, well, you talked a lot about your approach and um, super interesting. Just curious, what, what do you think is some of the things that are a bit different about um, <laughs> I guess um, in terms of, what what sets it apart? I think it's a different, difficult question to answer. But what I, what I would say is that it's a fund run by myself. I'm investing mm-hmm. my own money alongside yeah. everybody else's money, yeah. and it's exactly the same way as I'd be investing my own money as if if, if there were no clients involved. Gotcha. Um, so because Which is of that, actually it's, surprisingly very different to a lot of the industry. Already, um, yeah. a, a lot of career managers, but yeah. So you're 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 eating your own cooking, as they might say. Exactly. So when 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 the value of the of the portfolio is up, mm-hmm. you know, I I feel that personally, and when it's down, I feel that personally in, in proportion to everyone else's money in there as well. Um, I guess so. You're investing alongside me, essentially. Yeah. Um, okay. And I'm making because of that, you know, my personal investment philosophy shines through in the stocks that we're selecting and there's no invest there's no remit or anything like that basically I'm, I'm buying I'm making decisions based off what I think will give the the best risk adjusted return you know yeah. um, and because of that it, I'm probably a little bit more concentrated mm-hmm. than what the the rest of the market would be because as I said I'm running as if I was doing my own portfolio yeah um, so you know I don't want to have 75 stocks or yeah, anything like that. I focus on on big ideas that I have and and trying to get the best returns that I can for myself and the other people involved. So yeah, I'm treating the I, I treat the 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 portfolio as if it was my own. If that makes sense. Yeah, because you you are invested and a large part of it is. So it makes sense. Yeah, um, but it's, it's not like it's a specific small cap portfolio or large cap portfolio mm-hmm. or growth or value or. It's it's none of that. It's what it's what makes most sense at the time, and sometimes that yeah. can be shorter term transactions as well. Yeah, excellent. Um, so kind of that flexible approach, I guess, from everything that you've you've worked on over the last few years, kind of yeah, exactly. I mean, what down. I've what I've learned since I yeah since my grandma first bought me rice <laughs> shares when I was younger. You know, that goes back to what I'm saying before. I learned at a young age yeah. what a dividend was because of that. You know. Yeah. I didn't need to be. I didn't need to be taught what a dividend was when I was 18 because I already knew intuitively because of that. And it's just that compound learning over time, you know. Yeah, I'm okay. Um, yeah, excellent. I, I think that that uh, kind of kind of wraps up the questions that I had, Jeremy. But uh, thanks very much for being a guest on the podcast. Uh, it was quite fun turning <laughs> yeah. the tables and um, and uh, putting the questions to you. So yeah, thanks very much. It was really good fun t- chatting to you. Cool. Cheers, mate. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks. That 
as you heard, brings us to the end of the recording. I think Maeve set a record there in terms of length of podcast, which is fitting for the 50th episode. So thanks to Matt for appearing on the podcast again, this time as a host. If you haven't heard it or would like to hear it again, we had Matt on the podcast in the past in episode 36, that, and, and that day I was the one that was doing the interviewing. So I'd recommend giving it a listen. Uh, Matt is obviously a, a smart guy. He also has a website that you can check out. If you go to www.mattjoss.com, that is M-A-T-T-J-O-A-S-S. Com. He puts some excellent blog posts on there that you can go and read for free, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. I think his most recent one, just looking before, was on Pushpay, and I know there's a lot of listeners that follow Pushpay. So I don't think we mentioned it on the podcast, but we recorded that over the phone. Matt is in Sydney and I'm in Auckland, so please forgive us, forgive us if there's any issues with the audio. I do hope that you enjoyed the interview. I was a little bit nervous at the start, but I hope that you got something out of it. Um, if you want to find out more about DCB, what we mentioned at the end, go to the Stock Market Movers website, that is www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz, and click on Invest at the top of the page, and it will take you there. Remember that nothing that I said today was financial advice. Um, send me an email at jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz if you have any questions. I um, hope you enjoyed the 50th episode for Friday the 26th of July 2019, and see you all again next week for episode 51.